Anytime business is brought into art, it changes the way you produce the art. Anytime. If art could just be art in the in its purest form, there would be no money involved. It would be done just for the beauty of it, for the for the artist's need to create. Unfortunately, we don't live in that world. Welcome back to another episode of Lights, Camera, Crypto, the podcast exploring all things entertainment and Web3. I'm your host, Stephen Ladden, and this week our guest is comedian and filmmaker Brian Moreno. Uh, a bit of an unexpected twist, though, to this episode, Brian, who is a dear friend, ended up passing prior to its air, and uh, just a devastating loss for the comedy community, for his family, for our friends. Uh, a phenomenal human. What can be? What else can be said? Just, just extremely generous, extremely funny. He was super passionate about comedy, about filmmaking, and fortunately, he was able to talk about both of those things. Uh, on this episode, he recently had his the combination of both those worlds uh, come come to life in the form of his movie Dreamland, a Storming Umveria fifty one movie, and uh, you know was just incredibly incredibly passionate about its creation. Uh, wrote, starred, directed, produced it, uh, and and goes into detail about that process in this episode. Uh, he also shares his thoughts on the future of filmmaking in a Web three world, and you know, leaves us with a great body of comedic work. Uh, if, if you're not familiar with him, check him out. Uh, he's on all platforms. Um, Brian Moreno, comedian, uh, just a, a, a great, great human. And um, he'll be he'll be missed. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Steve Ladden. Excited to be here, buddy. Yeah, like likewise, lots of fun things in your orbit that we'll get to. You know, you've got a new film on the way. But before we dive into that, you know, you've you've been a, a longtime comedian, longtime filmmaker. How did how did the intersection like maybe just talk a little bit about where your background in crypto and, and finance comes into play and then how it all intersects with your Hollywood uh, career? I think it all started in college. I went to Indiana University, um, stayed a, a nice five and a half years, took my time. And in that, you know, I, I got a chance to try my hand in quite a few things. Um, sure. A- acting and directing being one of them. But uh, business and finance was another. Marketing, stuff like that. So uh, in college, uh, some friends and I, we'd pull money together. You'd ask your parents. And, you, you know, with the idea that you're going to start your own, like, fund in college. And then me, and it was all in my name. And me and one of my college buddies both had access to the account. And this was like the early days of like day trading online. So the, the computer systems were still kind of antiquated. So two people could be logged in at the same time and be doing the same, like to be doing opposite transactions and the system wouldn't catch it. Well, him and I would would be obsessed with trading throughout the day. And we'd be going to like the, you know, a computer lab at college. He was at one side of the campus. I was on the other. We both log in. We do two different trades. The account goes into a margin, and, which was illegal for my account at the time. And I <laughs> got suspended by the SEC for trading for one year. Wow. So I'd say that was the beginning of like where I was like, I had to learn 
what I was doing so I didn't continue to make mistakes. Even though I, I still have, I still do. I find new and fabulous ways to make mistakes. But after college, um, I acted for a little while and then I fell into a job because I did have a marketing degree and I was working a, a daytime job, or, you know, regular nine to five at the time. And I fell into a job at the Wall Street Journal and uh, one person quit. Another person got pregnant and left the company. And all of a sudden, I was the West Coast public relations manager of the Wall Street Journal. And I mean, I was qualified, but at the very low end of what qualification would be. It's a loose qualification being a loose the very, term. The, yeah, the very bottom end. <laughs> you mess around in college with with some trading, get banned from the, by the SEC for a year. Find yourself, ironically enough, working for the Wall Street Journal. How, like, what, what, what did that then? How did that inform your your thoughts on just finance and, like, how how was that job? Well, working at the Journal taught me how much how shady it all was. Like, how many backdoor deals? It, like, you always kind of know, but it's like uh, a publication that is you know, that is uh, really esteemed within the world that that can literally change the price of a stock if they write like a bad story. Well, how are you going to write a bad story about Honda or Lexus when they're taking out full page ads every day in your newspaper? You know, so there's within the journalistic integrity of it all, like I got to really see how thin the line was. So that, um, you know, that that might have really started my distrust in in major media but it also taught me a lot of foundational uh things um when it comes to getting to a point and communicating um because some of those people who worked for the journal were the absolute the master communicators within their field and they taught you how to get to a point how to be pithy you know sure without without uh bogging down the, the sentences of ums and uhs and likes. Sure. And, and it's something that as a comedian, I think I've also had the opportunity to work on more because when you listen to yourself and you hear the, uh, that's all I hear. It's like, I can't literally hear anything else that I'm saying. If, if I happen to do that. And sometimes that's just a crutch that we fall back on. And it takes years of experience to trust those instincts. And that's why writing is also such a beautiful communication form, because you have time to edit and go back and and rewrite and and really uh, find, you know, find your path to the point. Sure. In terms in terms of finding your path, it sounds like you graduate college, you start this job at the Wall Street Journal. How, how does that then lead to comedy to writing to filmmaking to that that stuff oh man i guess all that um all that really came because i didn't make it as an actor <laughs> like that that was really what and when i say i didn't make it as an actor i really for whatever reason i thought i was gonna make it a lot quicker than what i did and and when i didn't um things other things started to present themselves and comedy was never even, I never even thought comedy was a profession that was for me until I kind of fell into it. As one of my jobs, I was the MC of the house of blues on sunset. I didn't even know that 
the art of comedy was something that was for me until one day a slot opened up in the room and the booker of the comedy or the booker of the house of blues is like, yeah, you can go do comedy up there. You're funny. You know, you have two hours. And I literally had three minutes of jokes, you know, like me, like, you know, Joe, like jokes that you tell your friends, you know, jokes that you tell on stage. And when I was like bringing up a band or something, you're saying literally you fell into so, so the opportunity then, you had to basically you were you were put in a position where if you didn't come up with jokes, then you were you were you you had to fill the space between announcing the the band or the artist and the band coming on stage. So like, well, sometimes the thing about that job was sometimes it would be an impossible battle. They would put you on stage in front of. Cause I, I even it was the same booker at the time. There was the Viper Room and the Roxy and stuff like that. And the same booker, the same guy did a bunch of nights at the all those clubs. And sometimes like a band wouldn't show up or a bus would break down and they just wouldn't refund the audience. And they just put up a different band and the MC would have to break the news. And I, I'll never forget, like one time, like it was in the Viper Room and I, I was trying to do my stuff, you know, and like the people were just so aggressive because I think they'd been waiting a while. And, you know, the booker was just trying to find another band to fill in because a bus broke down or something. And I get up there and I'm trying to like break the audience down and make some jokes. And I just hear a fuh, 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 and a glass bottle just like goes right by my head. Jesus. Yeah. So it's like that that teaches it to be funny real fast. Yeah. I mean, they're not throwing tomatoes. These are these are projectiles that can knock a tooth. Yeah. 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 Those are bottles. Yeah. Those are bottles. So don't know. But let me be clear. Like I had some inclining of comedy. I had done some open mics and stuff before, but I didn't become a legit comedian until i started failing regularly at the house of blues because so much of comedy is about failing i think so much of life and character building and and figuring out who you are is about failing so comedy is nothing you know nothing out of the ordinary you know for what i think regular life should be sure it's just a little more pun intended uh, here uh, in the spotlight you know in terms of you're on stage and, and yeah. your failings in that way, you could say, are arguably more. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of a different word other than spotlighted, but obviously <laughs> that's what keeps coming up. It's meaning, if, as you're saying, if you're working out material and you're, and you're figuring out what works and what doesn't work with an audience, that's a different type of life experience than, say, Jim, who works in a cubicle and his failings, no one's seeing, but he's still failing and he's still getting better at his job. It's just people aren't seeing those those failings in the way that, that uh, stand up, you know, we're seeing a joke bomb or, and we're participating in that. We're not participating with Jim. And, you know, if he fucks up an Excel spreadsheet, it's probably just him and his boss and potential clients are getting impacted, you know? Yeah. I guess I never thought about it like that, but, but the public, you know, the public ask the public shaming that comedians go through, as they work on their art, I guess is, um, you know, it's like we all know what we're getting into. It's like not a surprise, but I never. Yeah, I guess when I worked in the office, though, I feel like I feel like uh, even when you do make a mistake and and there aren't maybe as many eyes on there in the office, all the eyes that are on your mistakes are usually important ones, you know? Sure. 
like it's your boss, it's your coworkers. Like nobody likes losing respect of, of you know, the people around them. Hmm. So, so, so that's why I think failure. You know, it's just, uh, you know, failure is a lot of perce- has a lot to do with perception because, you know, in the truest like, you know, Zen ideal of life, there is no such thing as failure. You know, it's just all lessons. And it's like failure is only large when you perceive it as large. I mean, granted, like if you, you know, I like we're talking about like is a lot like failure and you're not hurting anyone or you're not going to jail or anything like that. You know, there's plenty of accountants that fail and go to jail because they're stealing money. <laughs> you know, that's not what I mean. Yeah, it's a different kind of failure. <laughs> Sure. Well, the, a different, different, different level of failing. Yeah. Uh, well, just to, just to, and I, and I hear you so much on, on the failing aspect, just to, just to go back to the acting piece, what was the link between realizing Wall Street Journal isn't for you and, and acting? Did, was there, were you, were you acting well uh, at the Wall Street Journal? Like what was the sort of the bridge between acting and comedy? No, no. I mean, when I was working at the journal, I I only worked. Gotcha. Yeah, I only worked at the journal about a year and a half. So during that time, I had taken a hiatus off everything, and the reason it's not like I quit the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal uh, quit gotcha. me. Gotcha. You know, there was one day I came in. Yeah, I came into the office and my my computer was gone. Oh wow! And I'm like, that's weird. And there's this little note like come see me and I go to this guy's office who hated me, the sales manager. Cause I wasn't a sales guy, but my salary came out of his budget. Sure. Cause I was a public relations manager and um, he did not like me. And he was like, you have uh, the weekend to decide if you want to keep your job here, you're going to move into sales. If not, um, here's a severance. Because the Wall Street Journal, that um, a few years earlier, they had been bought by News Corp, which is Fox News. Sure. So uh, they were doing they were doing a lot of streamlining, and you know, there's a lot of when two giant companies like that, there's a um, you know combined, there's a lot of overlap. So they were going through a time where they were just getting rid. You know, the the News Corp uh, public relations people were taking over. So I was simply just more of a budget cut. The casualty. Yeah, but I was offered a job to stay. It's just not a job I wanted. Gotcha, so, gotcha. So that's why I left. And, you know, I, after that, I think my next job after that was being a DJ at a strip club. So <laughs> so the mighty fall very fast. Yeah. Sure. Or or ascend, or ascend quickly. If you yeah, or ascend, yeah, which it depends on your perspective. Yeah, I, there's a lot of people who have clapped to that when I've... When I've <laughs> that's a very interesting... Uh, Choice of word there uh, coming after. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Club. Uh, uh, that, okay, okay. So this makes this gives us colors the perspective a little more clearly. So Wall Street Journal ends, and and well, what's interesting too is you had a you had a crossroads there where you could have continued on that path, and it you know clearly wasn't your passion because uh, writing and filmmaking and and acting are. And so, what gave you the confidence to, you know, you have you kind of have both uh, options right in front of you you can you know in a, in a matrix sense you can take this pill and uh you know continue on with with the company in a different capacity or take the risk and and bet on yourself and and you know 
go the strip club route of, of DJing there and, and ultimately finding, having the experience to find your way in a more artistic realm. Like how, how did you have the confidence to listen to yourself and, and go in what would be arguably to most people a more or risky direction, I should say. I guess at the time it was a combination of youthful stupidity and like just believing in myself that I think I got that from like, I I'd like to thank my mother for that, for, you know, my mother being Colombian was kind of, she wasn't hard per se on me as a kid, but she was cold, you know, like she, she, she was just like, I'm preparing you for the world. You know, it's not like she was mean in any way, but uh, it's like she's like, I remember very early teaching me that you guys, if you don't believe in yourself, how is anyone else going to believe in you? Sure. So I so I think that lesson and my youthful exuberance and, you know, stupidity played a part in me thinking that this was a good idea. Sure. And I don't know. I don't know if I would have made it in an office, though. Like, I think I think we're all hardwired differently. And I think that um, I think that a lot of us, um, you know, can make it in those environments. But I don't know if I was necessarily the best because I remember towards my end of my time at The Wall Street Journal, I was drinking a lot. I was very self-destructive. I did care about my job, but I also didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, because I was unhappy. You know, it made me kind of force me to think outside of the box, I guess. Well, take stock and and, and really reevaluate. Or I I guess what you're referring to, too, is self-reflection. And and you took the time to to really listen to yourself. And when you're, I mean, I think we've all been in situations where we've been unhappy and, and have let the sort of the the wheels of the day, the wheels of the job, the wheels of whatever situation just kind of keep spinning so that you don't have to acknowledge what ultimately you might have to face if you take the time to self-reflect. Yeah, to yeah. take the time to self-reflect. So it's neat to hear that in combination, it sounds like with sort of your the perspective from, from your mom and then also you taking the time for you allowed you to realize, hey, Presenting, presented, being presented with these two options, these two different paths. Now's the time, and you know, now's the time is definitely something that was I said to myself when I was. Now's the time if I'm going to do it. Right, right. Which you know, timing to that end, uh, as they say, timing can be everything, and in no small way is that uh, truer than than with art. So on that tip, you know, you go from. Wall Street Journal, DJing at the strip club, get it, getting your reps in at the House of Blues, mm-hmm. all the while continuing to write, continuing to, to shoot projects. At what point does sort of comedy, you know, at a certain point, comedy and, 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 and writing and stuff like that take over? Where does, where does, you know, crypto fall into this? How does the background in finance come into play? And at what point do those two kind of worlds intersect again well believe it or not the college friend who i blame for getting me suspended by the sec was was the individual who got me into crypto 
Well, he had been te- he had been a proponent of crypto since man early when I was starting comedy when um, when it was God. I'm guessing it was between sixty and maybe Bitcoin eighty cents. Like, wow, it was under a dollar. Now, mind you, had 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 he been suspended by the SEC too? No, just me because the account was in under my social security number. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, so, but he went and like, he, after college, he went off and I think he worked on the Chicago commodities market, um, the, 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 on the floor there. And maybe he started his own hedge fund, stuff like that. Like, he went off to do his own finance things. So his introduction to crypto was very early. And he was ultra fascinated by this. He's one of those guys that'll sit up all night, smoke cigarettes behind a computer. Like, literally, they'll be soot on the computer screen <laughs> sitting there all night just doing research into these things. You know, some have been winners. Some have been losers. I, unfortunately, my my first and biggest swing into the crypto market was a coin. Like, this was at the time like when I was like, okay, I'm really going to... I'm going to invest. This was when Bitcoin was popping uh, in its early pop from like eight to 15 range, I believe, like five to 15, that that spike range. Whenever it did that at the time, I uh, invested in some of the altcoins. And uh, it was literally like a comic strip the day that because we were going to mine the coin or we were going to get a master node. And I think we were going to maybe earn interest with mm. with that. And the coin, you know, I believed another comedian who sounded smart, but he was fooled like us also. Maybe he was in on the con, too. But uh, five, six, seven of us invest a bunch of money. And literally the next day, the coin goes from 100 to 75. The day after that, from 75 to 45. And we're all like, oh, it's going to come back. And this is literally, it's like, it was literally like you handed the money. Sure. And then the coin. Yeah, it was. That's why I feel like there was some scam that, that went on. But but uh, after that investment basically went to zero. Ooh. I, I, yeah, I knew that I had to start doing a little more due diligence. I had to kind of take the same the same mental perspective with cryptocurrency that I took with stocks and trading, because I have a few fundamental beliefs when it comes to, to stocks and trading. And um, every time that I deviate from those is when I get burnt. Crypto, you know, investing in crypto was, um, was one of those things that I realized I had to take more of a sound financial approach. And you had to kind of, because there are, there's a lot of hype involved in cryptocurrency because it's one of those things where if you own a crypto, you're going to talk it up and up and up until you sell that crypto. Right. So there's a little bit, there's a little bit of, you know, not necessarily Ponzi, but the, the kind of buddy buddy thing in, in the crypto market. And that's also how, that's also how like a lot of it retains its price because the people do hold mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately, it's the the big money market managers and the guys, the guys with a billion dollars that that wipe 
guys like me out if you don't really pay attention. Because I, you know, I'm investing in crypto, like the volatility also attracted me because, you know, uh, during pandemic, uh, you could day trade crypto, you could buy and sell a lot of it on margin, especially things like Dogecoin and crazy things that that uh, had a volatility like you'd almost n- never seen. And I was on the wrong end of some of that. I was on the right end, but I was on the wrong end. I mean, it balanced out, but that type of trading, that type of margin trading in crypto is not for the faint of heart. Sure. And, and it sounds like then to sort of mitigate those potential losses, if you have a system in place, which it sounds like, uh, I'm saying generally, if people have a system in place that works for them with traditional finance, then perhaps applying that to crypto might you know, buffer some of those losses. Yes, I just know that most of the cryptocurrency at some point in time is going to go to zero. Like there's so many coins out there that are just absolute scams and money grabs. And it um, I don't know how it's ever going to be uh, properly regulated, but uh, regulation is also a, a stranglehold for a market like that. So. Right now, I would say, um, you know, based on my experience, that you just got to stick with the big boys, unless you're just trying to make a buck or maybe catch a ride on the way up, which is great. It's it's a great time, but they usually don't stay up. <laughs> you know? So, so just like I like my major investment, like I just I just mess with Ethereum and Bitcoin anymore. Like that's it. And and do you think though that that Siri and Bitcoin have their sort of dominance because of their practical use and that perhaps some of these other coins that are more fly-by-night are, are fly-by-night because of lack of practical use, lack of implementation, stuff like that? Well, it's, 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 use, it's not just use case, but it's also um, energy. It's like the gas fees. It's uh, the use case, but it's also... Um, it's also who is controlling like the majority of the coins because a lot of these coins, they're just, they're just held by, I like the major accounts, you know, like is 10%, you know, the controls 90% of the coin, 10% of the people that can make for like major volatility. Uh, there are certain coins that are used in the metaverse. Um, there's a uh, Decentraland mana, uh, there's a few other ones. Um, like Facebook has dumped their cryptocurrency plans a couple times, but eventually to use within their metaverse, they're going to have to adopt something. So those would be the coins that I would, if you're going to stray away from the big boys, those would be the coins that I am more likely to go to just because, you know, people really do buy and sell land in these metaverses. Some people really do like mm-hmm. And some kids, as much as old guys like you and I think the metaverse, there's some some really uh, ridiculous stuff going on in the metaverse. Some of these kids love it. Sure. And they are spending money money for tennis shoes in there and they are buying clothing. And, yeah, I mean, it always comes back to what what does your coin relate to cash? But 
you know, at least you're using it. So there's a practical use case and that kind of stuff. I think I believe is only going to get more like more, more accepted and more widely used. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and in that case, it sounds like then the more adopters there are as time continues to go on, that's really going to help push some of the longevity for some of these coins that you just mentioned too, specifically. Uh, but I would imagine too, the popularity of a Bitcoin or an Ethereum that just compounds and compounds over time as more and more new adopters continue to get into the space. Yeah, I mean, but also remember, as the new adopters come in, other ones fall to the wayside. So for all the new, the new shiny stuff, some the money's got to go come from somewhere. True. You know, so that's why other ones start to go to zero. And you asked me a question about Ethereum the other day about uh, if we should buy into the merge. Hmm. I say no. I, I think the buy into the merge is already priced in to it. There was a jump uh, three, four months ago, and that's where I think you got most of it because the whole thing about this merge is nobody knows if it's going to work at first. Like, nobody knows. And a lot of the future of cryptocurrency depends on if it works or not. Sure. Or not. Because... If the merge does work, it's going to remove 99% of gas. Um, miners aren't going to be able to be involved in it. The The practical use case, like we were just talking about, for Ethereum is so high, like so high. From contracts to, you know, the NFT space is kind of died, but, but from contracts to actually certification of things, I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of cool ways that people haven't figured out how to use the blockchain yet, but it will be coming up if something like the merge does work. You're saying that a lot of the success of just cryptocurrency in general moving forward is predicated on a successful Ethereum merge. Well, just imagine if it fails. Well, what could what, what could that mean? A lot of uh, commodity pricing is based on not only speculation, but consumer confidence. And say they try to do the merge and the whole network crashes and nobody can exchange Ethereum for three weeks, a month. The use case for Ethereum will be so low for so long. People won't have confidence in it. They won't want to use it. They'll All they'll talk about, all the old people will talk about is, oh, you remember when it went down or you, you know, and, and someone younger, well, the new Vitaly will just try to think of something else and they'll try to take the place, you know, who like Solana. People talk about a lot as an ETH killer. There's a few of them. For the short term, I think the merge the fate of cryptocurrency really depends on the merge. Like the doom and gloom scenario that I'm presenting, <laughs> it, it really depends as, as if they can do it. As if they can do it. Yeah. I mean, because you'll, you think they can, but the coding is so, like, I don't know. It's you complex. I, it's complex. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. We have, this is all just speculation. Sure. And there'll be plenty of talking heads online that, 
that tell you, oh, it's going to go smooth is no problem, but nobody knows. Nobody knows. True. And, and I think the other piece to that, too, is, you know, if you look on the website, the Ethereum website, when it, when it talks about the merge, uh, it also has listed that you know, all your accounts are safe. There's nothing to do as a user or as a holder of any of the, 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 the tokens, cryptocurrency, stuff like that. So it'll be interesting to see, too, if that does, in fact, remain the same, you know, you're, there's no disruption to your holdings because I could imagine, too, to your point, that if there were any disruption to people's holdings, that that would also cause uh, a rupture in the force uh, as well, you know? Yeah, major ripples, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. I, I I would have to look this information up. I don't know what the highest use of Ethereum is, but just imagine whatever market or industry that is, if you just can't make transactions for even a day. Yeah. Strong, as you mentioned, strong, strong ripples. It's, it's, uh, we could go down a lot of wormholes of speculation as to what those ripples would, would lead to, could lead to, uh, you know, but it's kind of one of those things where I think we'll have to wait and see, uh, what, what shakes out, uh, on that tip with the future of crypto being potentially a, a uh, fixture in Hollywood, in, in filmmaking and storytelling was there. I know you recently have a, or actually today, uh, you have the, the premiere worldwide premiere of your, your movie Greenland, a storming area 51 story is, yes, sir. Thank you know, you. so, so congrats on that. Uh, that's huge in terms of its production was financing through crypto ever something you had explored was it something you had looked at is it something you'll consider uh doing for future films absolutely um it wasn't something that i had looked into for this one you know this one was personally financed but going uh moving forward wherever financing comes from a movie uh, you know the source you know you kind of have to investigate the source wherever it comes to make sure that it's legitimate but as long as it is legitimate and, um, you know, the oversight works with me because, you know, works with what I think my next film needs are. Yeah, I would absolutely consider um, any type of crypto funding. And I think um, within film, there's a lot of opportunity for product placement and, and stuff like that, um, you know, for, uh, you know, for that type of financing. Sure. And also there's with... As I like, I say I know the NFT market is kind of dead, but I think in financing a film, there is there is some type of community aspect that there is a use case. I, I don't exactly know how. I would have to talk to some people smarter than me, but how to get the financing done where the people who invest actually get like a share of the movie somehow. You know, um, whatever it may be, like a half a percent for so much, you know, even less, but like even divided down to even smaller fractions so that people investing a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars can, you know, some somehow, some way get something back from the movie. Um, you know, and this is, you know, like a crowdsourcing, crowdfunding type of thing. But to do it uh, through the blockchain, I think is is very possible. And is that is that sort of return something that could be you could see being provided through DAOs and through sort of the community type fundraising that we're seeing? 
Well, it could be, say that uh, someone invests, say, $10,000 in your upcoming movie. That $10,000 maybe gets them, um, you know, an extra, a walking extra role. And then they get uh, maybe an NFT video um, of that scene with them in it or something. You know, whatever it is, so that they have, um, you know, something that shows that they were in the movie that only they have that's unique to them that can't really be copied unless they, you know, unless they just want to put it online and show it off. But there's like things like that with video that I don't believe have been tapped into yet, but stuff like that. So like I different forms of creative collateral, basically. Sure. Yeah. Great way to put it. Yeah. Great way. Interesting. Interesting. So, you know, and it is actually then if you think of it like that, because we, we have seen this in sort of the web two era, if you call it that the, with, with the Kickstarters and the you know, other crowdsourcing platforms that, exist this idea of people coming together around a particular vision to support a particular project. But I think the the difference maker here is with say a DAO or another type of community organization is is more it's it's both helping that specific project, but also it seems there's more of a vision for the collective of hey, we're gonna support these types of films in addition to the specific one maybe that we're funding right now. And we want to, yeah. you know, people are, it seems, wanting to have more of a say and more of a, uh, a, a dialogue and more of a choice in terms of how that money is allocated and where it goes. As a, as a creator yourself, do you see that helping the end product? Does that change the way art is made? Does that, you know, help execute a vision? Or does it, does it run the risk of if it's, you know, we become reliant on, say, DAOs and community sources of funding, do we run the risk of changing? Anytime business is brought into art, it changes the way you produce the art. Anytime. If art could just be art in in its purest form, there would be no money involved. It would be done just for the beauty of it, for the, for the artist's need to create. Unfortunately, we don't live in that world. So, yeah, I mean, the more the more money you need, the more it affects the way you have to do things, because people coming in with two, three, four, five million dollars, they might want more of a say than other people, Mm -hmm. you you know, like then not not necessarily just other people, but they're going to require more of a say than someone dropping 10 grand to be, you know, an extra. And that being said, say you get 200 people who give you $10,000. Well, that's a lot of extra work. Like that's a lot of people you got to write into. So yeah, it, it affects the art in every way, you know, every way imaginable. But I'm all for new and creative ways to get art funded. Mm. You know, you know, I it's if these things that we were talking about doing were cheap, we would just everyone would just do them. So so new and creative ways to get it funded. I'm not only all for I'm I'm I'm, my ears are wide open. (laughs) Well, and and to that end, how how do you. How do you, how do we find that balance artistically between, as you mentioned, look, art and commerce, 
our PB and J, they've gone, they've gone together for, for many, many millennia. Yeah. What, what's the balance though, when it, I think this more introductory element of community becomes involved and how does that, how, it, it almost seems like then you're, with what you're creating, the community has to find appeal to it. If you're, if we're talking specifically about DAOs and then like, does it add another layer of who you have to let's, let's, let's pivot back in the day or, or the tra- traditional model will say of studios is all right. You make a movie. It's in a studio system. Does that movie make a return for the studio for it to be considered a financial success? Now with, with DAOs, the idea of, okay, hey, we all ideally want this to generate revenue, but now they're, we're introducing this idea of, well, not only does it potentially have to, the expectation would be that it, uh, the film produces revenue, but it also has to fulfill these mandates for the community members. Are those community members just a different way of saying, as you were saying before, you know, investors, or is it another layer of people that need to be considered when making creative decisions for a particular project? That's an interesting question because uh, everyone, okay. Now you're getting to like the fundamental question. It's like, uh, who, who are like the people, like, who are you bringing onto the movie? Like who, like what, what creative, what creative expectations does the investor have? Hmm. Because it's like, you could get $5 million from someone who has zero creative expectation. True. They just want their name. They just want to be in the movie. Like you find a, a Saudi prince that wants to be the executive producer of a movie and just have his name. They might have zero, you know, creative input in the same note. You might get that same $10,000 person who thinks they're the director. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you actually let someone on set or give someone the idea that you guys are friends or maybe you're looking for input, you know, like it's it's just that that fundamental question is like, what is the creative expectation of anyone investing in a movie? And it's like sometimes, you know, you watch the, the how the Godfather was made, <laughs> you know, like there's. There's certain people with creative expectation. There's other people that are just suits. Right. And whatever they say, the the creative just doesn't care. Like, it's nothing, it's nothing but shit coming from a suit's asshole. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, so it's like, that's just the fundamental question on, like, movie making. Like, how much are people really in your head? And how much are they, like, are you in their pockets? Right. So, so like it just like it, it really like because you're asking me to give you a specific answer when it just comes down to a fundamental, like a fundamental question of expectation. So, right. So, so I think that the answer here is it, it sounds like it's more case by case. And I think that makes a lot of sense to your point of yeah. who's, who's creatively involved. And then at that point, too, it's it, it, it puts the discernment on the filmmaker for them to decide, okay, who do I want involved in this project? knowing all the basically thinking about the types of things that you're mentioning here, which, which, which it may seem that crypto investing in films, perhaps there's no necessarily difference between what you as the filmmaker is looking for in, in terms of what those investors uh, creative input is. It's just, it's, it's more, 
what's the project and you know what do you want from your financiers and then it sounds like it's finding the alignment between that and you know the people that want to support it totally totally so to that end do you think you know for future projects and stuff like that the advent of crypto and DAOs to help fund projects does this make funding projects easier or does it as you just mentioned like is, is getting funding for a project easier with the ability to invest in it through crypto probably but i i can't until i i mean for the right person 100 percent. but until i dip my toes into that pool i can't tell you what temperature the water is you know got it got it Something on the horizon, though, to potentially dip your toe in. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, totally. Not, not, not just potentially. I think it's a really interesting avenue that I would love to talk to someone who's actually raised money for other projects. What Any type of project. It doesn't even have to be a film. But I know there's people who specialize in raising money. And I would love to hear their thoughts about some of the logistical um you know, some of the logistical issues that would, because I, right now, the only thing I can think of is the creative expectation and it would be getting the word out there, but I don't know. Like, I don't know. Well, it would also be interesting too, from a, from a finance perspective, if, if actors would be interested in, and maybe some have already, uh, I, I, I can't pull, think of any off the top of my head, but if you think of, say, uh, Odie Gotham Jr. and some some of these athletes who have taken crypto as a form of payment, that perhaps that's something that actors might be interested in in the future, too, for, for a particular project. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. And then what does that do? You know, does that help budgets? Does that – is there an increased risk? Well, you know? if you can get – well, what helps a budget in today's market is social media followers. That's literally like famous, famous. That's the only thing that helps the budget right now is if someone is famous. In terms of raising funds for the film or promoting it afterwards or? No, in terms of raising funds, that's the only thing that, that no, it's like, say uh, you have a $5 million movie, you with, with funding secured, a $5 million movie, and then someone like, I don't know, like Chris Hemsworth or so. I don't know, like a $5 million actor comes on. He's like, I'll do it for two and a half. And it says, you say, you you know, that two and a half isn't budgeted in the movie, but you got a big actor signed on. It's easier to go back to the original finance being like, I need 50% more money. Like, so that, that, like having someone famous, that changes it. And I would assume that it would make raising money a whole lot easier also. Like star power in the traditional sense is yeah. That's the only thing that changes it right now. It's crazy. Like it's totally crazy. Is there on that tip? Is there is there not quote unquote fake star power, but is there something to be said about say someone who has a following, but that following isn't generating anything? You know, it's just well, sure, sure. This is this is uh, goes back to the my my thoughts about the industry being fooled right now. There are just a lot of people in the industry that are just totally tricked by social media. Like, cause there are these people with really, really great numbers on their social media accounts, but they can't act. 
They can't do anything other than what their little niche is. And they can't like move the needle. <clears throat> but there, there are people with 20, 30, 40,000 or 40 million followers on TikTok verified the whole bit. They can't get 50 people to show up for them at VideoCon. Interesting. You know, they, they just, yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge um, trend right now. And I know eventually people will get their, their minds together. But right now it's like these numbers have a lot of people really tricked and a lot of people thinking that these numbers mean a lot more than what they do. Because some people do like there are people with 10, 15,000 followers that can really move the needle and people with a million that can't do anything. So it's not, so you're saying it's not, there's not a, a true, you, you got to do just as, as people should be diligent in exploring what the motivations are and the expectations are of potential financiers. So too, should they be uh, filmmakers be, be vigilant in understanding the true power of the social numbers of someone that they're considering for a role or something like that. Yes. Yes. Well, Brian, maybe talk a little bit about, I know uh, we're, we're almost at time in terms of the new film, uh, Dreamland. Did you, Yeah, man. You, you know, it's out, it's out everywhere today uh, on, on all platforms. What was that process like? And in terms of creating the movie itself and, Maybe just talk a little bit about you know, if there's anything you would have done differently as as the crypto space has kind of ascended uh, over the time that you've been editing and, you know, up until release. I would have um, cast more famous people. <laughs> <laughs> um, For the reasons we just talked about. Yeah, yeah, for all the reasons. Like, I'd be, I would already have money for my next movie if the people in this movie were just a little more famous. I guess the things I would have done differently. Hindsight is twenty twenty, but I saw a big crypto crash coming, and I held on a little too long and probably lost. God, a good a good portion of money that I could have put into my next film. Mm. So if I would have done something differently that directly relates to the crypto space while I was editing, I was predicting this crash and I held on a little too long. Like I still was able to dump some well above what it is now. But when I bought in at 40 and 45, like for me to take that loss down now, it was down to like 18, 19, Ooh. like that hurts. Like yeah. that's a big loss that you got to hold on to. Like the money's now tied up. Right. And, you know, but being able to sell some at 35 or whatever, 32, like I feel like was almost, yeah, it was a loss, but it's almost a victory. Sure. <laughs> right. Right now. So, and that's money that I could have directly used for my next project. Right. So that's why, you know, that's why, I mean, sometimes you do have to get off a sinking ship. Holding forever isn't isn't always the most prudent, um, especially when you need the funds. It's not the most prudent path sometimes. Sure. Especially if you believe the market is headed for a downturn. And I did. I totally believed we we're I had 
I I knew we were for going for a downturn. I just didn't expect it would be so low. You know, like trying to judge the top and the bottom is never a healthy way to trade. I I knew we were in for a downturn. I just, um, I like a lot of other crypto investors, you get caught up in the whirlwind, you get caught up in the excitement. And, you know, like the fear of missing out becomes a tangible thing. Sure. And that's, that's something that um, I let get a little too a hold of me. And, you know, it's like, like I say, hindsight's twenty twenty. I I don't know. I don't know if it was within my ability to do anything more or not. But when you lose, you know, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, you feel it. Like it was especially when you're a small investor like myself. Sure, sure. And especially when when as you're mentioning, that money is there's a there's a real time use for uh yes, as you mentioned, you're, exactly. you're in the editing stages and then the, you know, going on the marketing promotion of the film. I mean, that's that's money that that could be put to could have been put to use uh, you know, had had you as you said Totally. Kept, kept your basics. Yeah. So, so the bigger nugget then from that is, is if you, as you mentioned before, if you have principles that you follow with traditional finance, sticking to your guns, whatever those may be, is is imperative kind of throughout your crypto one's crypto journey, but also just in life. You know, if if, if you got a formula that works, don't deviate from the path. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And, well, and sometimes you got to remove emotion. But mm. yeah, yeah I mean, stay the course. Uh, don't get too caught up in, in emotional things. The highs are never as high as they seem. The lows are never as low. Well, and, and that's and that's such a hard in any in anything. I mean, with with art, with anything, it's so with you know crypto investing. Sometimes separating yeah. out that emotion is the that's also that's often sometimes harder to do than pulling the trigger in either direction, you know, it, it, it just, just the feeling of a, of a loss or a win can, can really be yeah, a, totally. a factor. Uh, right. For, for the, the film itself, uh, Dreamland again, out everywhere starting today. What, what was sort of the driving force to have this be uh, in many ways, your, your, your foray, your, 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 your calling card in some ways as a filmmaker, like you've done a lot of stuff prior this really is the the one uh, the movie of this magnitude. You know, this is this is the first thing out there. Yeah, that's a good question. I I don't. I just knew within within the confines of my budget and equipment, I knew that making a kind of curb your enthusiasm style documentary that kind of felt like the office a little bit, but also gave people, because the whole thing about dreamland, um, this film, it's, it's not supposed to be the most enlightening alien documentary. And most of those movies suck anyway. Like when you watch these alien documentaries, your eyes glaze over after 10 minutes, this is supposed to be an entertaining story that makes you wonder what's real and what's not, but also makes you, you know, also makes you just see this kind of controversial, um, kind of esoteric conspiracy theory laden group of UFOologists. You know, it's like you kind of get to see it from a different perspective and 
and I knew I could tell a comedy story within this event. So that's kind of how and why it came together. I'm just so happy I was able to even get it this far. Like, it's really, really difficult making a film. The obstacles that presented themselves throughout the last few months have were just tremendous. Sure. <laughs> or the last few years were just tremendous. So I, I'm just thrilled it's able to be out there. And I, I hope people watch and enjoy. It's always a, an interesting thing putting your art out into the world and seeing how the universe is going to accept it. Yeah, totally. And well, but that's to your, to alluding to the earlier conversation about art. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of it. You know, you, 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 you create yeah. it and, and then it's kind of out of your control after that. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a correlation, do you think, between people who, who believe in UFOs and aliens and extraterrestrial life and those who believe in the success of cryptocurrency? Oh, that's a good question, <laughs> Steve. Um, I would say that the cryptocurrency market is ripe with alien believers. Mm. I don't necessarily know if there's any correlation. <laughs> you know, like I I have to say I like I have to think that um that the cryptocurrency investors, I would like to think that they have an open mind and that's what leads them to to uh, to the belief in aliens or the the open-mindedness that it comes to enjoy alien <laughs> conspiracy theories. But uh, I don't know. I think it's more... I don't know. That's a good question. I can answer a lot of questions, but I don't know if I can answer that one. Well, maybe maybe uh, if there are any, you know, uh, I imagine if you're listening to this podcast, you're, you're a crypto enthusiast, perhaps some, some listeners can weigh in. Uh, and, and after they've watched uh, the film Dreamland, they can, they can make a, uh, a comment for us to say, hey, you know, yeah, as a crypto enthusiast, I, I too see the parallels in my belief or disbelief in in aliens or extraterrestrial life. So maybe maybe kind of like uh, this is this is a question the film can can help answer by uh, folks yeah, watching. Yeah, 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 totally, <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> right on. Well, on that note, this has been another episode of the Lights Camera Crypto Podcast. This week we've had Brian Moreno, uh, comedian and filmmaker. He's got the uh, film Dreamland, a storming Area 51 story out everywhere. Brian, thank you for coming on. Pleasure talking to you and uh, really appreciate your insights. Thank you, my friend. Have a great time. Have a great day, Stevie. And thanks to your audience. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Lights, Camera, Crypto, a podcast produced by Matt Solon and Decentral Media. Music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Himes.